You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Dr. Seema Yasmin. Seema, thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me on the show. Seema, I know we're going to talk about poetry today. You'll be reading a few poems, but you you do a lot of different writing and, and, and different projects. So let's begin with what you're working on now. What are you involved in now? And I know it may be in a few different spheres, so I'd yeah, I'd love to hear what you're you're currently involved in. So the writing project that I'm spending most of my time on at the moment is a book called What the Fact, which will come out next fall from Simon & Schuster. And it's a young adult nonfiction book about the false information ecosystem, about misinformation, disinformation, but also about journalism and media literacy and social media and digital literacy. So it's kind of really getting into the weeds of how is it that false information spreads? Why do humans fall for false information even when we're given the evidence to counter it? And kind of why do we form the beliefs that we do um, and aimed again at a, a teenage audience? Well, that seems like a book that adults should be reading as well. I mean, adults could read this book and, and, and understand it, right? This is an adult issue as well as a, as a teen issue, isn't it? Definitely, yeah. It's, it's an issue for all of us. We just felt that there weren't many resources for younger people specifically um, on how to deal with this stuff, on how to be a critical reader of the news, how to contribute and be on social media but not fall prey to the misinformation and disinformation that spreads there. But, you know, I really hope that as adults we're reading kids' picture books and we're reading young adult novels and young adult nonfiction. There's just such a wealth of literature out there. We really shouldn't be confining ourselves to, you know, purportedly what's written for our age group. Of course. And, and you know, what you're, the topic, of course, is incredibly timely and um, and, and and difficult to kind of digest, I would imagine. You know, in in you know, I kind of dislike this term, but we've talked about being in a post-fact era, which just brings up yeah. a little bit this this idea of um, you know alternative facts, which I guess is an Orwellian term as yeah. well as a kind of Trump term. Um, and, yeah. and and this seems to be among adults that I talk to and. We're talking about the pandemic and so many other things that there are um, there are what what seems to be kind of beliefs right that that people have that don't have to do with facts or or not mm-hmm. and um, I mean I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more about how your book breaks that down but you know often I find in conversations people say something like, well, I just, uh, you know, I, I don't believe in Fauci or I believe in Fauci or right. I believe this, right. but we're not talking about um, data or facts. We're talking about right. uh, uh, presumably a person's right to, to kind of believe what they want to believe, which seems to, I mean, to be a right. odd and argument. That there was even this study that came out right at the end of July that found that among adults who say they believe in science, which is an interesting thing to unpack in and of itself, but among adults who say, I believe in science, those are the people who are most likely to fall for false information that contains pseudoscience. 
they're also more likely to share that false information containing pseudoscience compared to those adults who are like, no, I'm a skeptic, I don't believe in science. So I think that's its whole, its own issue. We haven't been teaching scientific literacy. And even now in the context of this quickly evolving pandemic, this very dynamic situation, we're just shoving it down people's throats and believe science. Well, what, what does that mean to believe science? Science isn't static. It's a process. Are we teaching that? Are we being honest about that? So I think there's so many layers to this and so much nuance that just gets lost in the believe this, don't believe that, be skeptical all the time. Actually, that's a really exhausting way to move through the world, being constantly skeptical. And so I'm, what I'm hoping this book does is give gives young people the tools in which to be analytical and critical consumers of the news um, to engage in social media safely without feeling like you have to be always skeptic about everything, skeptical yeah, about everything. It's, 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 so, it's so wonderful that you wrote this book, and it seems to me that this book should um, not just be a book that's, that's widely read, but also that uh, we're talking a little bit about a, a new system of education, aren't we? Because this yeah. this book should be what's being taught in schools. It's it should be how children learn to to find facts, right? And question what is a fact? Who produced this fact? Right. And also, you know, there's there's been evidence for a really long time that in the context of a polarized conversation, pouring more facts onto the conversation is like pouring kerosene onto a fire. And yet, what do we do when someone disagrees with us, when there's factions of the public that don't want to get vaccinated? We just keep throwing facts at people, presuming they haven't already seen these facts, which usually is incorrect. They have, they just weren't swayed by them the first time. So why are we repeating them? But really not having the empathy or the wherewithal to understand where someone's belief came from, why they are digging their heels in about that particular belief. And in the context of science, which is the space that I live in, it so often has a lot more to do with everything outside of what you think is a science, outside of the vial and the vaccine that's inside it. And it's to do with history and culture and religion and ideology and geography and these other very complex things which we artificially try and divorce from the conversation. And how, so how does that move, move forward? Um, in, the, in the example that you gave, you know, facts are often the response to, to people um, dis disagreeing. But as you're saying, that's, that doesn't work. It certainly doesn't work on social media because they've heard those facts before. Um, so, so what is an appropriate response as, as we evolve into a, uh, you know, an ongoing conversation about, about not just the pandemic but other other facts that that people seem to disagree on in, in enormous numbers. It's a bunch of things at different levels and layers on a micro level. It's having conversations with people about their beliefs are actual conversations where you ask questions, you listen deeply, and you apply empathy in your listening to understand why somebody is refusing a vaccine or why somebody believes that wearing a mask goes against American ideals of freedom and autonomy, which is what some people believe. So on that level, it's that kind of empathy, that kind of listening, that kind of understanding, that kind of not making assumptions about large swathes of the population. And then on a macro level, it's a much longer process and conversation. It's thinking about things like building scientific and health literacy at a national level 
way before a pandemic. In fact, considering building health and scientific literacy as critical components of pandemic preparedness. Otherwise, you end up in a situation like we have now, like we had last year, where masks weren't recommended, then they were, where universal mask mandates for vaccinated people were recommended, then they weren't, or they were recommended by one county, not recommended by federal authorities. And to the public who isn't scientific literate, at least factions of them are not, we end up being perceived as well, indecisive, flip-flopping, scientists don't really know what they're talking about. So there's many, many layers to this. And what I would say is, you know, within my world, within medicine, we always teach and talk about evidence-based medicine. We would have it no other way. We would practice no other way. And yet we don't teach and practice evidence-based communication because that lives outside of our silo. And yet we have decades worth of evidence from communication scholars and social psychologists that show the routine ways that we communicate science are deficient in so many different ways. And yet, we just keep repeating the same way of trying to sway people and then wondering why are they not convinced? Why do they not believe the facts that I've printed in this pamphlet? So there's many, many levels to it kind of broken down through the micro and macro levels. Yeah, it, it seems that there's also something about, that's so fascinating and also something about um, uh, the, the kind of the, the wording, what, what, what makes people read or click or, or, you know, paraphrase something. I have a, a publisher who told me that a Skyhorse Publishing in New York, they, they publish a tremendous amount of books of different titles, and they published a book called uh, The Case Against Masks. And it was, a, it was a big seller and was eventually taken off of Amazon. They published another book called The Case for Masks. Um, nobody was interested at all. Uh, didn't do well. They published another book called uh, the, the Cause of All Diseases, and it was something like basically someone's theory that it had to do with UFOs and, uh, I don't know, ancient uh, symbols and, and, and something really kind of, kind of crazy. And 5G mm. technology, right? Um, that book did fairly well. When they published another book um, by several doctors who were talking about where diseases and viruses come from, um, it didn't sell well. So, you know, I'm not sure what that's about, but it, it, it strikes me also that there's this just kind of anti-authoritarian streak that, mm -hmm. that also seems to blindside people, uh, like, a just, like a disinterest in the facts. They're not as, they're not as sexy, for lack of a better word, uh, when, when we're talking about something that seems like, um, you know, uh, a kind of, you know, opposition stance, you know, to, to, to authority. So, so that seems... I mean, there are all these nuances, as you would say, but that seems like a very difficult thing to get to get beyond in terms of oh how yeah, social oh media it's not easy. Yeah. Oh, oh, it is complex, and it will it requires a multi pronged approach depending on which community you are focusing on. And I think often in public health, we love a one size fits all approach, as opposed to one that's tailored and targeted to specific communities, engages the stakeholders and the trusted leaders in those communities. But I'm not at all saying that it's simple or straightforward, except that the approaches we keep repeating often fail us at particular levels, or at least at a particular point. And there is evidence to back different strategies, which often in public health, especially, we don't approach. And, and some of that is thinking about where does somebody's, where do their beliefs come from, that you talked about political ideology, but 
race, ethnicity, our religious beliefs and backgrounds, all of those things factor into it. And so often we try to artificially divorce those factors from the conversation. That's so true. It's, um, it's so interesting talking to you about this. So I, I know you're going to read a few poems, um, but I, I, since we're talking about, about science and, and perception and all this research that you're doing, um, it's also very interesting to me that you're both a poet and a scientist. So um, before you, you read, and I think you're reading from If God is a Virus, uh, book of poems, uh, how, how do you see that in, in terms of your own vocation, your career, your, your, your art? To be both scientist and, and artist and writer seems unusual. Uh, we don't see that often. It's using very different sides of the brain. I think it's real and I think it's sad that we don't see it more often because I think so many of us when we go into medicine or going into a particular field are told that's your identity now, especially when it's such a in a professional sense. And yet many of us love to play an instrument, love sports, love literature, whatever you know, I don't know, whatever that might be, love fashion and are told, Hey, these things don't jam together. You must separate these things from you and so I've really worked to do the opposite and to build a career that combines all of my passions and make space for new ones and I think of these things as really complementary so my poem this book happens to be about journalism which I am a journalist and it's about virology and epidemiology which I am an epidemiologist very interested in viruses and it came about because I was sent to Liberia in 2015 and 2016 to report on the Ebola epidemic there and I was, had my reporter's notebook and I was writing for Scientific American and other outlets and I was just a few years out of serving in the epidemic intelligence service so I had these different hats on and then when I came home to really process the tragedy and the trauma I started writing poems and I, I, I think there's just so much synchronicity and overlap between the things that fire us up, whether it's poetry and science, whether it's sports and engineering, whatever that might be. And so it's nice to have permission and room to be creative in different disciplines. And I think often creativity in one area actually feeds and fuels creativity and success and um, a feeling of fulfillment and contentment in other areas of your life too. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I think so too. So what is the first poem you're going to read us? I'll read the first three poems, actually, or the first, some of the first poems that are in the book. So the first one is called, Disease is Not the Only Thing That Spreads. What else is contagious? Ellen's long tongue, a rumor we bury daddy in an unmarked grave, history. Pathogens crisscrossing agar-plated petri dishes like rebel soldiers breaching trenches. This story, that we had it coming, that we are good only for uncivil wars and diseases, that we prayed for colonization, blood, microbes escaping test tubes, conquering lab countertops slower than hearsay. She say we burned daddy's corpse like bad Muslims, like white-coated doctors instructed. What else is contagious? Doctored death certificates, half-truths, cursive, ink. They say there is no cure, then there is a cure, only for them. So what else spreads? Knots of grief twisting bowels into distended loops of fermenting torment. No days of mourning, 
two years of outside intervention, armies, conviction, belief that this will spread and spread, that all contagions wax endemic. This one will never end. Thank you. Uh, yeah, very beautiful, and and and, and it's uh, yeah such an interesting thing to to combine. You know the ideas of um, all these other even much more insidious things that can spread. You know from from racism to so much social social struggling, um, and and interesting that that how that how that kind of dovetails with with being a scientist. Uh, how, does, how does the community receive these? Where are these poems read? And, and, and do you get feedback from, from the poems? And I do. One of the interesting things that's happened is, you know, this book is published by Haymarket. And so you can buy it in Barnes & Noble. It's, it's where books are sold. But my trip to Liberia in 2015, 2016 to report on the epidemic was funded through an award from the Pulitzer Center on crisis reporting, which supports journalists to go tell stories or report on particular angles of stories that are seen to be underreported and missed in the mainstream media. And so because that initial trip had happened with the support of the Pulitzer Center, and the Pulitzer Center actually does a lot of K-12 um, classes, education, what they did was they took this book and created a teaching guide to go with the book. And so the poems are now used in schools across the country to explore the role of journalism, how journalism reports on crises, and that's related to the next poem that I'll read, and to really think about media bias, media coverage, think about public health and epidemics. So that's a, when I was writing these poems, I certainly wasn't thinking of a younger audience, but that's been an interesting thing to see and to engage with students because I virtually visit classrooms, read poems, listen to the students give their feedback on the poems, and then we write poems together or, or, or think about the ways in which poetry and journalism intersect. I love that. And the next poem you're reading, which you just mentioned? So this poem is called all the news that stick to print. Dark deaths matter more if they speak English, if our nurses are sent to help and return with trinkets, tans, and meningitis. Editorial judgment dictates at least 16 black people must die to equal one white man's death. 43 if the outbreak is old news, does not involve profuse hemorrhage, a former colony, or biblical references. Subtract one dozen if our boys are deployed to clean up their mess. Add nine if babies are disintegrating in shallow graves, but restrict to 12 inches maximum. Even maple syrup tastes bitter, licked off fingers inked with destitution. Buttercream pancakes stick in the throat, and it's all happening so far, far away. Follow the story with one reporter who knows nothing of PPE, shrouds, and ritual mourning. Send four photogs, overuse two underpaid local fixes if deadlines for awards are approaching. Win a Pulitzer for photos of brown faces eating expired medicines smeared in peanut butter aid. Say it is a gift from the American people. Say it was worth the ink. 
Thank you, Seema. Um, beautiful words, beautifully written poem, very, uh, you know, so evocative. And, and, and of course, this, this one is also intertwining your, your experience as, as, a, as a journalist, of course, and, and, and so many things that, that, we're, that we're talking about, right? Yeah, and poetry definitely gave me an avenue to think about the myth of journalistic objectivity and to really cast a, a critical eye on the crises we do cover, the crises we don't cover, the fact that we have the nerve to talk about all the news that's fit to print, knowing full well there are so many stories and lies that get left on the cutting room floor that are deemed by people in positions of power to not be newsworthy enough to print. Yes, um, so true. It's, it's, I mean, I know you've written for the Times, and that's the Times uh, line, and it, it does, as, as you say, it seems incredibly antiquated now and, and almost out of touch to use a line like that. Uh, um, but also that's, that's a very nuanced kind of uh, argument and, and poem. So thank you for that. And, and let's hear one more. There's one more you're going to read, correct? So the book is called If God is a Virus, and throughout the book there are poems with the same title. So I'll read you one of those. If God is a virus, phytoplankton drips down her thick thighs as she stirs a primordial ocean with her toenail. Striped fish slap in God's ankle bracelet. Along the coastline she drags a tangled seaweed braid. If God is a virus, she is naked. Shed her nucleocapsid when salamanders grew legs. Now she is two strands of missense RNA, acid ladders reaching to the heavens. God is in your fever, in your dandruff, between your teeth, crying in the permafrost, massaging her way out of a mammoth's trunk, a bison's tailbone. She is having sex. God is making babies in your tender lymph nodes, giggling when you prod the swollen knots. God is pregnant. Parasitic fetus suppressing white cells. God is an infection. Her incubation period as long as three sermons on the mount. Replication rate amplified by saline, sweat, and fear. A virus gave you a gene called sin so you could grow placentas. Sin fuses baby to mother, fuses uterus to placenta. A virus blew air inside your drowning baby's pigeon chest put some respect on her phospholipid membrane. Watch God's fat molecules shimmer, her flagella undulate. If God is a virus, we are over, over and over again. Reborn absent pinky toes and coccyx, spines seven degrees more erect. Praise the holy fevers, pray for split-brained migraines. Thank you. Um... Yeah, that's such an that's such an interesting poem. So here, where, I mean, that's that's uh, reflects on the on the title of the book, of course. If God is a virus, um, and it's so interesting in all that we've talked about uh, in your in your in your role as a as a scientist, as a as a journalist, um, you know, as a um, as as an author and a poet. The, the, the poem touches on very different territory there, right? The idea of, of God and 
you know, perhaps even touching on, you know, uh, what what evil is or not. I mean, if that's not too much of a stretch, it, it, it makes us all question, or that's how I read the poem as, as, as or, or heard the poem. It seems to be a kind of um, a way of, of trying to reckon that, which is, which is difficult. The age-old question of kind of why me? Why this? Why why now? Almost why the why the pandemic? Um, was that your intention, or or, or am I um, maybe just layering my own vision onto it? Well, that's what I love about poems. There are so many meanings, and it can strike us in different ways. I was, as someone who'd been a student of viruses for so long, I used to work in two thousand and three or four in a coronavirus lab. So it was soon after SARS and I was studying the way that coronaviruses mutate. Um, I was just obsessed with viruses and thinking about them as, yes, dead, deadly, because I was in Liberia, you know, reporting on the Ebola epidemic, but I was thinking about the fact that, you know, by some estimates, 8 to 12% of our genes are viral in origin. You know, we are literal... literal um, offspring of pandemics is a line in another poem in the book. And so I was thinking about viruses as givers of life too. And this one particular gene, SYN, sin, that we likely inherited from a virus that allows us to reproduce, allows the, the placenta to fuse to the uterus. So those were some of the things that I was thinking about when I was writing that poem. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. It's just it's just fascinating and seems, you know, I mean, as you said, I guess it's traveling and it does create conversations. Other people can, you, you do workshops as well. So it, it, it has a, an educational element, much like much like your other work, it sounds like in, in terms of how they get out into the world and how you and how you share them. Yeah, and you know, you call it educational, but actually, what you said after that, it's just is more it feels more accurate to me, and that it's more about sharing and then receiving people's understanding and feedback and perspective. So, it, you know, I teach in those Pulitzer Center workshops, for example, but they're very educational for me in thinking about how young people engage with journalism and engage with poetry, what their take on it is, and then seeing them, you know, craft poems in real time. Um, but that that is one of the scary and lovely things about creating art is it's your own until it's not and then it's out there and it's everyone yeah that's lovely that is what's kind of amazing and wonderful about art um before we go before i ask you the last question since we are talking you know right in the beginning of august 2021 and we're still in this in this pandemic and you know you're you'll you'll continue to write about it i'm sure and and, and we're all involved in this in some ways. Um, hopefully, the, hopefully, listeners will look at your books and buy them, and also all your all your writings online. Um, but is is there something you want to say in terms of the first book you discussed, and 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 the the situation we're in now? I mean, just just today, I was arguing with it with a good friend that I had no answer to, who said, you know, the, the vaccine's experimental, and there's too many people having problems with it. I'll just wait. Um, yeah. how, how, how do you uh, battle that? How, how, how do you? you By know, this, uh, I think the you know I think the question you might want to ask, and I'm interrupting you, sorry. And the question that I often fine. get is, what do you say in response to that? And it's like maybe nothing. Maybe we listen instead, and maybe we really need to get a deep understanding of 
that perplexing reality that somebody would rather take their chances with a new virus than with a vaccine that's been through rigorous trials and testing and has now been administered to a few hundred million people around the world, right? And so I think there's so much hubris in that I am going to say this, I am going to counter your belief, which I think is wrong with this, when actually, can you freaking explain to me why the heck you would refuse a, a, a life-saving vaccine? And I think it has to start with those questions and then with deep listening and trying to understand something that to many of us is just unfathomable. Right, listening, that's, that's so powerful and so important because that's partly what, that's, that's what we see not happening on social media and the discussions everywhere yeah. where we're looking at people yelling at each other all the time. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's so powerful. Um, Seema, I want to ask you one more question, which is what are you reading at the moment? So it is August, and that means that many people, lovers of poetry and poets, engage in something called the Seeley Challenge, named after the poet Nicole Seeley. And the Seeley Challenge means that from August 1st to August 31st, you read a different book of poems each day. And ideally, you share on social media what you're reading. And so I've already fallen behind. <laughs> it's August 3rd, and I've read one book of poems so far because I'm on deadline for this, the young adult book we first talked about. But the book that I did read on the first day of the CD Challenge is called Dispatch. Um, it's a book of poems by Cameron Awkward Rich. I cannot recommend it enough. And if I may, I'd like to read you one excerpt from one of the poems, if that's okay. I'd love that. I'd love that. Yes, please the, do. This, and, the, and poem, this is from, the poem, uh-huh. yeah. this is from no, Dispatch, a book of poems by Cameron Awkward Rich. The poem I'm going to read an excerpt from is called Anti-Elegy. Once a man said, mine, and a woman became an empty room. Once a man said, mine, and the ocean split and the endless passage. Once a man said, mine, and there's a genocide. How strange to make the world with language, to wield desire as a weapon, to watch one nation burn and another rise up at your feet. Once a girl looked in the mirror and called herself, said, my name is, said, I am, I am. And a man said, mine, mine, mine. Thank you. Thank Thanks you so much. Read that. It's such a stunning book of poems. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I'm so glad you did read that. And, um, and I hope for all the listeners reading, they'll also join the, uh, you said that was called the, the Sealy Challenge, correct? The Sealy Challenge, yeah. Just put the hashtag in on Twitter or Instagram and you, you'll find it. And that's a wonderful, I, I love that challenge for myself, even if I'm starting a little late, it's not too late, but it's to read oh, it's a, book of, a book of poetry every day, some, some book of it's poetry. So it's there. doable, and if, yeah, and if you're like me and you fall behind, don't beat yourself up, just, you know, try and catch up. Seema, I want to thank you so much for your work and for your time. Uh, thanks so much for talking to me, and I wish you best with your upcoming books and work. Thank you so much. Thanks for the great conversation. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more.